Hi, and welcome to show number 24 of the LCAPS The Travel Talks, a podcast where people share travel stories and adventures. My name is Tony Lloyd, and I'm your host. Thanks to everyone who has been following us so far, and for the people who have not done so, please subscribe so that you too can get all the updates as soon as they come in. If you would like to donate to this program, please take a look at our podcast notes to see how you can do so. On our Facebook page, we have written stories, and if you're someone who likes to write, or if you'd like to submit us a story for a future podcast, please send us an email at elcapsitotravelTalks at gmail.com. Also, for any questions and comments that you have, you can send us an email to that same address, which is elcapsitotravelTalks at gmail.com. For today's show, I talked to an Aussie about his journey and how he ended up finding the Valley of Longevity. So please get yourself a cup of tea or a coffee and enjoy the show. My name is Nick Vasey, born and raised for the formative years in Australia. In university, I basically did a what's called a commerce degree, which is a business degree. Actually worked Price Waterhouse, possibly one of the more miserable years <laughs> of my life. Discovered fairly quickly that I wasn't an accountant by the end of that year. I realized I certainly didn't want to have anything to do with those kinds of companies. And it was the following year, essentially, that I jumped on a plane to London and the adventures started. So what was your first journey in London? friend from university and I actually linked up with my brother and my father and we had a business idea. There was an Australian company that was manufacturing a state-of-the-art breathalyzer for public use in bars, pubs clubs, that sort of thing. And we eventually, we did a deal with those guys and we got the sole distributorship for the next few years in the UK uh, and took a bunch of machines across with us. Away we went, putting machines into pubs and all over the English countryside. Essentially the entree into my brother and I discovering the opportunity for us to have our own uh, late night bar in Earl's Court in London. It was not a very healthy, I mean, we were, we, were, we were partying a lot. By year five, I was getting a little, uh, it just got a bit tiresome for me. I just got a bit uh, jaded with it all. And when the opportunity uh, presented itself, uh, go off to Tokyo, I jumped on it. And my brother ran the bar for another year or year and a half after that, before he went off on other adventures of his own as well. So Tokyo Adventure was quite something. <laughs> I ended up uh, managing quite an iconic bar there in the first year in, in a place called uh, Roppongi. Uh, Roppongi is essentially a few square miles of the most intensive, or it used to be, it's been gentrified now, glamour and beautiful people and uh, getting up to mischief 24-7. You know, so there was always somewhere to go. Uh, to Pongi turned out to be really a very uh, hardcore education into human nature and uh, gangsters and underworld and possibly two of the best years of my life. Glad to get out alive. (laughs) (laughs) Best but dangerous. (laughs) Okay, and then from there? Well, in the middle of those couple of years, I I went uh, traveling through Thailand, India, Nepal, and then I bounced back to London, uh, caught up with my brother for a little while there, and and then I went off to Israel. I was crewing on a 33-meter topsail schooner called the Lamy, and we used to do tourist trips, basically sailing around on the Red Sea and having a lot of fun. Once I moved off the boat with a very good friend of mine from from that yacht, uh, we ended up managing a bar called the Hemingways. 
that we made the bar so successful that uh, the other bars had lost quite a bit of business to the bar that we were running. So eventually they put the immigration police onto me and my friend Kai. We got a, we got a warning. We got a warning in no uncertain terms that we, that our time was up and I didn't really have a plan. And then I thought, you know what, why wouldn't I go back and make some more good money in Tokyo? So I went back to Rapongi and did a second year and I ended up becoming uh, the, the dance manager there of 40 dancers uh, all doing their thing in uh, probably the most famous strip club in all of uh, Tokyo. So after this wild escapade? Well, I went after that second stint in Rapongi, I went back to Australia. But long story short, I decided to go back into the matrix uh, proper. I cut my hair off. I went back into suits and ties. And I did this more or less as a uh, as a personal test. I wanted to see what that would, because I'd been out of that system, systems like that for so long, out of the corporate world, been doing my own entrepreneurial stuff or managing other things for other people. I wanted to see what that would be like, uh, what that would be like generally, but also what it would be like to be back in my own country again, uh, doing something there. Long story short, it turned out to be kind of difficult to to get back into it because uh, when you're applying to get back into the matrix and you're being screened by people, you know, by recruitment companies, and the kid who's screening you is, you know, 10 years younger than you and hasn't been anywhere and hasn't done anything. And he has no idea how to grade or assess a person who's done a whole bunch of stuff that they could, they have no frame of reference for the kind of person it would take to be able to do those things. So that's a word of caution, I guess. Uh, it's not always going to be an easy thing the longer you're away from the matrix traveling uh, and doing. But I eventually got back in there and uh, ended up in a good situation in sales roles and business development manager roles. And uh, but eventually I just realized that I, you know, that I that I that I could do this kind of life and I'm good at it, but I just hated it. That was basically the trigger, the catalyst that got me looking uh, over to further afield. Synchronicity and a few other things just pushed me in the direction of South America. And then Ecuador came up on the radar and the rest is history. Okay, so now we come to an interesting part. And how did you choose Vilcabamba? And then we'll talk a little bit about what is special about Vilcabamba. Long story short, again, uh, the, the synchronicity, it was kind of a serendipitous thing. I went to a, a dance party and there was one one guy who was selling some uh, CD-ROMs, which had a, a bunch of information about free energy and uh, zero-point energy. And I'd never heard of this uh, kind of thing. One of the interviews on the CD-ROM was with a guy called Brian O'Leary, ex-astronaut from the Apollo era, and had since left the States and was had written some books and given interviews about suppressed uh, energy. He had moved uh, with his wife, who's an artist, a great artist down here in Vilcabamba called Meredith Miller. And they had moved to uh, Vilcabamba and had started building what was to become an eco-retreat uh, called Montesueños. Myself and my, or my, my wife at that time, ex-wife now, wrote uh, to them from Melbourne. And so we, uh, we landed uh, in Ecuador in July and we were with Brian and Meredith by August, about August towards the end of August in 2008. And uh, yeah, towards through the end of that year, we helped them get things ready and uh, did all publicity and helped upgrade their website and did a bunch of other stuff. And we received guests through November, December. And uh, at that point, we 
we uh, had realized that uh, Vilcabamba looked good. Stunning climate, very interesting demographic of, uh, of foreigners, obviously a completely new culture and a new language, lots of things to learn and to throw yourself into. And that's what happened. I think we moved out of uh, Montesueños uh, towards the end of that year, 2008, and into a rental and then eventually ended up buying property. And, uh, and now here I am, still here 12 years later. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about Vilcabamba for the audience. First of all, Vilcabamba is actually quite famous internationally. It's considered one of three places in the world where people live to be over 100 years old, known as the Valley of Longevity. So currently, there's only two other places in the world, one in Japan, and I think in Pakistan is the other location, where there's a large group of people who are living to be over 100 years old. Currently on record, oldest person that ever lived in Vilcabamba went all the way to 140. However, several people say that that's true. Some people say that it's not true. What is your thought on that? What could you share with us about that? All of this story harks back to, I think it was a Nat Geo back in the 70s, and they had someone here, and they realized that there were, that there were a lot of old people, and those old people were in remarkably good shape. They did some kind of study. It wasn't really a scientifically rigorous study. They were just basically interviewing people. And, uh, and I think the, uh, the local Ecuadorians just had a bit of a, decided to, to play a bit of a joke on these, these uh, strange gringos asking all these stupid questions. So this story was blown up forever and a day. Since then, the, the Vilcabamba has had this uh, longevity tag. Now, it's not all nonsense, although unfortunately, in the last generation, it has become more so nonsense. You know, and the other thing is lifestyle. So uh, whereas this whole valley would have been you know, for the most part, farming, farming concerns, and you're never far from a hill here, obviously being in the Andes. So they were walking, uh, they were working all day, they were walking everywhere. And this kind of a, a lifestyle was obvious, and they were and their diet was different back then and healthier, far healthier than it has become since then, with all of these modern innovations, throw into the mix, satellite TV, smartphones, so on and so forth. And the, the sedentary life uh, just gets more intensive, obviously, cars and motorbikes, uh, they're not walking as much as they were. And I think you've seen, I think, and Obviously, I mean the read. We do have a lot of old people in Vilcabamba, but I don't think they. I don't think it's going to be. I think that's the last of it. Uh, we're not going to see that kind of thing uh, continue into the future. Okay, so they won't be getting to 140 anymore. Probably the oldest one, oldest person here was somewhere around 112. The 140 thing was was one of the a joke on the scientists, but yeah. Okay. The other thing is that that I heard is that. Not only is it you have the oldest people, but also there's one could go to Vilcabamba <clears throat> and actually cure a lot of different things just based on swimming in the river. Because apparently the river is famous that it has all these mineral values. So there's a lot of people who go there to sort of cure heart issues and different sort of things. Do you have any thoughts on that? I've dealt with a lot and, and I've been doing real estate uh, for that whole time. So I've had many, many clients and especially most of those clients are, have been from North America. And many of those clients are coming down with, you know, are, are more towards retirement age and they've got health issues. And I've seen some very good examples of people who have decided to change their diet to, to the healthy aspects of Vilcabamba food, uh, which is we have a fantastic market selection of fruits and fruit and vegetables down here. And, and just 
the walking, uh, just walking, you know, regular walking in the hills and getting uh, getting back because it's a beautiful place to walk around. It's a beautiful place to spend time down by the river. And there is actually, that there is actually scientifically documented evidence of uh, minerals and health giving material in the water because it's coming down from through some of the most, what's the word I'm looking for, rejuvenative kind of topsoil uh, from the Podocarpus National Park. So it filters down through all of these layers of humus and so on and so forth on the forest floor and finds its way into the river and then comes down, obviously makes its way to Bilkabumba, but it's come down from a great height. There have been some, I mean, I think that if, uh, I think that if anyone comes to Vilcabamba and they want to do something about their health, pay attention to diet and exercise and do some swimming in the river, I think that they're, op- they're absolutely going to see benefits from that. So you think you found the valley of longevity? For me, Vilcabamba is a perfect little place because it's, Vilcabamba sits at about 1,500 metres, uh, about 5,000 feet, and we have a year-round uh, perfect climate. Essentially, there's only two seasons. That is the rainy season and the dry season. Rainy season extends from about November through April, and the rest of the year is obviously uh, a drier part of the year. And But the temperature stays more or less the same. It might be a degree or two cooler during the the rainy season, not too hot and it's not too cold. Things grow year round here. So you've got fruit trees growing year round. You've got vegetables that grow year round. It's a very easy and beautiful place to watch nature all around you. That's the main reason that Vilcabamba became... And, oh, and it's a bargain. I guess the other thing I should mention is that it has become quite famous. A bunch of foreigners deciding to remake their lives and to downshift into this kind of lifestyle. So we don't only have North Americans, we have Europeans and people from all over. It's uh, very much the United Nations uh, in terms of the kinds of nationalities that congregate in Vilcabamba. Here we have kids in their 20s right through to, obviously we have some retirees down here as well. But the difference is kind of people seem to have a, a purpose uh, or, or, or at least are interested in a range of things that are typically to do with off-grid living. So hydroponics, uh, permaculture, anything that's self-sustainable. Uh, people tend to buy a property two or three kilometers out of the village and then they, they, they do their projects. And so you end up with a network of people, all of whom are very knowledgeable about whatever their fields of interest are. And they become kind of like your loose tribe. And people will say, oh, look, I've just done this project. And, you know, I'll say, oh, can I come out and have a look at it? And suddenly you're looking at some really interesting thing that these people have done. So, so Vilcabamba is very much full of uh, some very smart people who know a lot about a lot and aren't shy about sharing that information sometimes, <laughs> which, okay, which, is some, which is sometimes, which is sometimes great and sometimes uh, a little painful. Sounds like a wonderful experience. Foreigners in the local <clears throat> mix, how is that working? For the most part, pretty well. There have been some, uh, some speed bumps uh, along the way. Uh, obviously when you've got, I mean, just so that people are clear uh, on the, the numbers, Vilcabamba is a valley with about 5,000 people population. Probably, I don't think we have, really ever exceeded 500 in terms of the number of expats in the valley i would say for the most part the the, the co the coexistence of uh extranjeros and locals is going is going pretty well in vilcabamba okay as uh, this is where you'll be for the rest of your life is this your spot is this your place 
I'm not a trust fund kid. I'm not on a pension. <laughs> I'm, not of, I'm not of retirement age uh, yet. Probably one of the few foreigners, expats here, that has made their living on the ground, you know, since I got here. The real estate company, I mean, now, now we do, we used to be called the Vilcabamba Real Estate Company until a few years ago when we changed our name because we started fabricating uh, transportable modular housing. So we're now known as Instacasa and the three businesses that we have, the, the, the real estate, the construction and the modular homes are all under that umbrella. So for me, um, I mean, I've been here 12 years. Uh, I have a beautiful place on the mountain with my peacocks and cats and, uh, it's, uh, and, and all the other nature that's around. Uh, so I can't, I don't see, especially the way the world is looking at the moment, it looks like a train wreck out there and it doesn't look like it's getting better in most places. So for me to watch it from afar <laughs> via the net and, and live my, my life up on this, up on this mountain uh, seems like a good idea. If one had to suffer this kind of quarantine, shut down, locked down kind of event, then uh, doing it on top of this hill where I live, uh, probably one of the better places in the world you could pass that time. Okay, sounds good. After all this experience of your international travel, working in London, working in Japan, and now finding the valley of longevity in Vilcabamba, is there any final words that you'd like to share with the, or thought that you'd like to share with, with others? Traveling, generally speaking, is a good idea, but traveling internationally is an excellent idea. And it's, I just want to touch on this kind of philosophically speaking at the moment and uh, in, in the context of the matrix and the rat race and so on and so forth. There is nothing that is going to give you the kind of uh, education stained international travel uh, will give you. And you only have one life. Bottom line is that if you sacrifice the opportunity that you otherwise had to get out and see this planet and the people and the cultures and the, the, the immense variety on it, then you are going to regret it later on because it needs to be done when you're young. It needs to be done before life gets its hooks into you. And I would argue that the, that ultimately whatever you lose in terms of the, or and I use lose in, in inverted commas as well there, whatever you lose in the context of uh, maybe having not been able to continue in that particular career prog progression that the matrix would have you do is more than made up for exponentially more than made up for by the, uh, the wisdom and the patience and the understanding that comes of not to mention all the fun that you have along the way, obviously, and the challenges you meet and overcome of the travel that of the international travel that you're going that, that uh, you're hopefully going to go out there and enjoy. If there's young, a young person listening to this, I would say get out there and just keep on going until you, until whatever it is that uh, is going to be your passion or your human interest story comes across your path and, and chase that thing. Get traveling and keep going. Okay. Well, thank you for that. It was a pleasure talking with you today. Yeah, absolutely. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure uh, actually to even collect my thoughts in uh, in this kind of a way for a format like this. And uh, I really appreciate you thinking of me uh, to be able to contribute. So cheers, Tony, and uh, all the best with everything. Thank you for listening in. I hope you enjoyed the show. To get a hold of Nick, please take a look at our podcast notes to get all his information. For the people who have not subscribed, I'd like to once again remind you to subscribe so that you get all the updates as soon as they come in. 
please, if you could help us through some donations, the information to do so is also in our podcast notes. For people who would like to write or if you have suggestions for a future story, please send us an email to elcafcitotravelalks at gmail.com. If you have any other questions or comments, please send an email to that same address, which is elcafcitotravelalks at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you here in Cuenca sometime either in the hostel or in the restaurant, El Cafecito. Also check out our sister location in Quito. Bye for now and please keep safe.